What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 83B of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Molly Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This is indeed part B of episode 83, so I imagine that if you're listening to this, you've already listened to 83 part A. So I won't hold you up anymore, let's just jump straight back into my discussion with Sam Gibbs 24 hours later. I hope you absolutely love part two as much as you enjoyed the first part. Sam Gibbs, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks Ollie, it's great to be here again. Again, just for the benefit of listeners, it's exactly 24 hours later. Sam was happy to give up some of her Saturday daytime and it's my Saturday evening and we just had so much to, to pick up on that we really wanted to, to explore for ourselves and for you listeners uh, that we decided to, to schedule another chat. So here we are. Sam, I wanted to start by picking up on the lesson that you were describing at the end of yesterday and at the end of last episode. So you're talking about teaching. What was the poem actually called? The poem is Checking Out Me History by John Agard. It's one of the set poems for the GCSE with the uh, AQA examination board that students have to uh, study and be prepared to be examined on. Great. And just for the benefit of listeners, um, your goal, to kind of recap, your goal was by the end of the lesson that students would have a sense that the poem is about power and people who use power to suppress thought. And you talked about how you, you front-loaded with some content focusing on key vocab like Eurocentric and distort, looked a bit at the author's background, his intentions and attitudes, like he was interested in Eurocentric views uh, and how the British education system had perhaps distorted his own view of history. And then you kind of got the poem under the visualiser and you got them to focus on a couple of lines and you deconstructed them uh, in particular. So the first one was Dem Tell Me, Dem Tell Me, what Dem want to tell me? And you ask questions like, you know, who's Dem? what might they have been telling him and you re- related that to their own um, experience oh, and help invite them to and then the next line you were looking at was they blind me to my own ad- identity that was really really helpful for me one thing i wanted to pick up on you said the idea of three things about three things and you said you only got to the kind of three things about two things but i wasn't super clear about what the three things about those two things were that you wanted them to take away so i just wanted to delve into that a little bit more if if you do recall yeah i think that's where I mean, just to say that the idea of three things about three things is not my idea. That's taken from um, all the best ideas come from Twitter, but from my lovely friend, Jennifer Webb, who is a, a fantastic English teacher who generously shares a lot of stuff that I got that idea from her. So I wouldn't necessarily go in with a set definition of the three things I wanted to get from them. I think there's got to be some flex for that to come from from the students. So in terms of the fir- that, that quote around... Um, about bandaging up my eye and blinding me to my own identity. The thing I absolutely wanted them to get from that was the idea of the the symbolism of of the idea of vision and truth. So to link back that back to kind of the wider threshold concept of s- symbolism, that was a definite. And then another couple of things. It was really I wanted to model that process of three things. One of the things students really worry about 
is how much they have to say in how much detail about something, but also the idea that they have to say something about every line of the poem. And that's a huge barrier to studying poetry because they, they look at the poem and often their first instinct is, I don't understand it. It's overwhelming. It's too much. So it was really about modeling that thinking process of here's a really interesting line. It seems to kind of stand out. There's, there's some symbolism going on here, modeling that what could this symbolism relate to? And then the other two things coming from them, which, which they did. And just to caveat that with, I don't know if I said this last time, it's the first time I'd ever taught that class in one of the schools in my trust. And I'm sharing that class with another colleague who's a deputy head in the class. And she'd only taught them a few times before that. So it's very much a way of, of me as well to find out what they could do and what they knew and how they would react to that poem and to me <laughs> as well. Cool. So you kind of head into a lesson with a really clear goal, which in this case, again, was the end of the, by the end of the lesson, you want students to understand the poem was about power and people who use power to suppress thought. And then the lens you had was they will understand that big idea and they will kind of furnish it with some understanding of some devices that the author has used and, I don't know, some specific and how those devices relate or are instantiated in specific lines of the poem. What would you be happy if the students leave being able to do? Yeah, it goes back to what you're saying about about the goal. And that's where the way that I went into that lesson would be very different to maybe how I'd gone into a lesson, you know, when I first started teaching 15 or 16 years ago, where the goal would be to cover the poem and for the students to leave with an annotated poem. Whereas my goal in this lesson was really about conceptual understanding, you know, which realistically it was a 50 minute lesson. There are going to be limitations. And we, we talked last time about, you know, to, to really acquire deep conceptual understanding, you've got to go between the abstract and the concrete. You've got to keep coming back to those ideas. They had had some lessons with the other uh, with my co-teacher on the concept of power in relation to other poems. So that concept wasn't new to them, but I was looking to add to that and to build on that. So in terms of what I wanted them to be able to, to do or to, or to know sort of by the end of the lesson, it was to understand that the poem is, as you've said, is about power, that the writer is expressing some ideas about the abuse of power and to be able to relate that to a specific detail in the poem. There might be a temptation you know, sometimes to, to make the students do something to show that they know that in some way, to show progress or to show to show learning in some sort of tangible, measurable way. So an obvious thing to do would have been to get them to write a few sentences or a short paragraph to show that. For me, it was more important in that lesson that the understanding was there and the way that they um, and that that didn't get tied up with the product as sometimes happens where students then get fearful because you've asked them to write something and then they panic how do I start the sentence what comes next and and just remember this this is currently a lower attaining group you know in terms of thinking about scaffolding their thinking and also their building their confidence they were kind of considerations as well so by the end of it, I guess the way that I assessed or, or the kind of evidence I was able, able to gather in terms of what they could now understand or do was in their annotations. So, you know, there was a strong element of me modeling that under the visualizer and them taking some of those notes down. I was starting to encourage, you know, taking your own notes, capturing your own thoughts. By the end of, of the lesson, Every student, I think it's fair to say, and I need to go back tomorrow or rather on Monday and look at their anthologies and, and you know, have a look again at what was recorded. But every student, from what I could see, had on that poem some clear annotations where they'd highlighted the important 
language, the important words, and they'd made some notations around that. And we'd linked that back together to the bigger concept of power. And we talked about the symbolism. So that, you know, that's the foundations then for me to build on next lesson, to pick that up, probably to do some retrieval around the idea of symbolism and why writers use symbols, the concept of power, go back into those lines. And then we're going to then have a look at the middle of the poem. We're going to look for the shift in attitude. And then we're going to tie that up to the end because the end of the poem links back to the symbolic idea of vision and, and truth. Mm, great. So I'm curious that the evidence you're looking for in that context was the the annotations i'm curious how you how much you scaffold the annotations and how much space you left and how you did leave space because as you as you mentioned yourself in the previous episode a lot of teachers will literally say like this is the annotation we're making on this line which you know is focused more on the product than the actual process of thinking so for example let's think about the the line the second line they blind me to my own identity and perhaps there was some some more of that what would you do as the teacher to get them started on the annotations? And then how would you leave them with space to carry on and build upon it in their own way? Yeah, I think I think that's a journey with every class and, and you know, really depends on the starting point. Again, you know, I'd, I didn't know the starting point particularly of this class. So it, it was a way of kind of, co, you know, co-constructing it together just to see where they were, where they were at with it. I think, you know, the, the longer term goal for any English teacher is that students can, you know, and this is the way that it's examined, but also beyond that this is what you would hope students would be able to do by the time they leave you is to, to look at a poem and to annotate that poem to, to notice things within that poem to be drawn to sort of interesting words and phrases and be able to say something in depth about some of those details so if that's the longer term goal you then need to ascertain you know the starting point of a class and individual students within that class with this particular class it was heavily scaffolded you know so they were watching me under the visualizer and, and I was pointing out what was I highlighting what was I circling and I was asking them to make sure that their anthologies at that point were identical to my notes on the board the space within that lesson was where I was asking questions and saying okay if you think that's that's interesting if that stands out you make a note of that as well so just that sort of early sense of there's some freedom within this also. But, you know, there were many, many students within that class with the HCPs, which is um, a kind of way of the school recording and sharing with teachers what additional needs students might have. Um, I don't know the students that well. I think, you know, from that lesson, they were definitely more able to access the conceptual ideas than I'd expected. I was really pleasantly surprised how much they sort of bought into that and were able to do it. So then I would think, you know, I, I need to think about that next lesson. So that space would would grow, you know, I would think. So what I might do next time is to look at a detail. Maybe we'd co-construct two things together. And then I'd ask them to have a go at thinking of a third thing. And it would be really important then that all the responses were validated, and unless they were completely wrong, in which case we'd have to pick that, but that, that all ideas were kind of welcomed. And, and that would be as way, a, a way as well to you know, increase their confidence. So some students are not confident in speaking at the moment, and also to kind of value that idea of personal response you know, in an early way to say it's not just what I say that's important, what you say is really important as well. And that that's a really hard balance to achieve, you know, modelling expert thinking in English so they get the benefit of that, the teacher narrating their thought process out, out loud, but as well for them to understand that there isn't just one right answer and it's not what the teacher says, that they need to also be engaging with the text and that their personal responses are, are valid as well. So you would, you would probably give them maybe 
an annotation to make or a couple of annotations to make on a specific line, and that would be in the context of this discussion you were having around it to get them thinking, and then you would open up or leave some space and say, take two minutes now, think about your own experience, think about what we just talked about and add something else. How would you frame that? Add something else that you think is related, add something else that you think is interesting. How would, how would you frame that? So I think it's all got to come back to the wider goal. So, you know, we were talking last last time about that framework, weren't we, for thinking and that being really important in terms of how we help students to organise their knowledge. And that's really problematic in English because it's um it's a limitless domain of knowledge. You know, you could never possibly know everything within it. And so it's really important that we build that schema or that kind of lens for thinking about texts. So for me, it's about reminding them of that framework. So in terms of this poem, we're talking about power, we're talking about abuses of power. So when looking at that line there, and we're looking at that detail, it's saying, okay, so at the beginning of the poem, we were thinking about how the writer explores the idea of power through that symbolism of being blinded to the truth and having your vision, um, having kind of um, your, your vision cut off, you're not able to see, it's hidden from you. In this line here, let's have a think now then, what do we notice about the language here? Can we see any links to that idea about power? Can we see any any language within that same semantic field of vision and of sight? Um, and what might we notice? So again, I've you know I've scaffolded that thought quite heavily. And in the early stages, that's really important, but it's just reminding them of that framework so that you know, it's much more likely then that every response you get is going to be in relation to that concept. Now, that's not to say there aren't many other things you could say about that line that would all be valid. But I think that's why teaching English is, is so tricky. And I think for me, in my early years of teaching, that idea that there are no wrong answers and, you know, and I, I bought into that for a bit, that it was okay for students to say kind of whatever they wanted. I actually think it potentially, it might be contentious to say that, to say this, it can be damaging for students where they struggle more and they find English harder and they come to the subject with less prior knowledge and a less developed schema, particularly around some of these conceptual ideas. So, you know, some people might hear that lesson and think, oh God, it sounds like you just told them what to think and you told them what to write. You know, long term, that's not my intention. I, you know, fully intend that by May, June, by the time the students go into their final examinations, they've got the confidence, they've got the understanding, and they've got the conceptual framework to notice those things themselves. But at the moment, it's September. I've just started teaching them. They need to see me scaffold that. They need to see me model that for them. And they also need their confidence building as well, because a lot of these students haven't been very successful in English in the past. And, and as you say, the temptation is to, you know, put the paper under the visualizer, annotate everything and have them all copy it down. But, you know, that doesn't marry with how we know learning happens because it's way, it's way too much cognitive overload, what they're going to remember. What are they thinking about? Well, I'm doing that. They're not thinking about concepts and big ideas. They're thinking about rushing. They're thinking about copying down everything I've said and, and kind of doing the, the right thing. So in terms of what I want them to take away from that lesson, it's more important to me that they they take the, the memory or the shadow, because that's what it will have become by now. I taught them on Thursday. It's 48 hours later. The forgetting curve will happen. That they'll have that kind of memory or imprint that this is about power and abuse of it and about hiding the truth. And if when I see them next week that's what they bring. For me, that's been successful. Whether they can remember every detail, you know, every line, every single image, less important. Mm, thanks. Sam. I'm sure you, I'm sure you answered it in there, but just 
for my for myself because um you said a lot of, there was a lot of valuable stuff in there but I I struggled to um hold the thread of my own question actually could you remind me and remind listeners that the the kind of the single sentence invitation you would give to students to add their own thought how would you phrase that in the classroom before you set them on that task so I might say uh, something along the lines of and everyone haven't done this now so I'm planning my own lesson for next week out loud it would be a case of reminding them about what we'd done so when we looked at this previous line the way we approached it was we had our big idea about power and the abuse of power and we understand the writer's attitude to that Therefore, we read the beginning of the poem and we looked to notice any particular words or phrases that linked to that idea of abuse of power. And then we asked ourselves what the writer could mean by that, what some of the connotations might have been, and what do we think, what do we notice when we see those words. And we came up with three things. Two, we came up together as a class. And then I asked you then to add some of your own ideas, something like that, if that's what I'd done. Today, then, we're going to look to, to another detail in the poem and we're going to do the same thing. So we've still got our big idea about power and abuse of power. We've been tracking, we've been noticing this semantic field around the idea of vision and sight. So let's look at this quote together now and just take a, just take a minute now to have a look at it. I would then read it out. I might do choral response or ask the students to read that out in some way and then maybe give them a couple of minutes. Just have a think now. Just make a couple of notations around that quotation. What do you notice? What do you notice? What are you seeing? How, um, and, and then take some responses and model it together. And then it'd be a case of picking out, you know, really good responses, bringing that together in some way. Okay, so you noticed the use of the word I again, but you said the I had changed. You know, did anybody notice anything about that change? What had changed? Why, you know, why could that be then? And then I would help them to, you know, I'd paraphrase that or I'd formulate that into a co-constructed response. I would model, you know, where I'd write that would be under the visualizer again. They would do the the same so be something about that but the important you know and that that could go lots of different ways you know depending but the important thing would be to bring back to memory that conceptual framework and remind them of the thinking process we went through so they could then apply that again to a different part of the poem thank you so much sam so fascinating i mean i i I could just i could just keep on asking questions about exactly the the nitty-gritty of what happened this lesson but i think ultimately i'd just love to get this is, what I, this is what I want to do now. We need to get some cameras into your classroom, video it, and then afterwards deconstruct, get you to talk us through and deconstruct it. I'll get on to some of my friends in the UK and, and see if we can organise that. Uh, watch this space. <laughs> Might be permission issues with students. But we've spent a fair, fair bit of time on that um, right now. So I'm keen to uh, move on a little bit to another topic which is very important to pretty much every English teacher, I think, and that is actually scaffolding and supporting students to write essays. So you've already really emphasized the importance of scaffolding, emphasizing thinking over product. And I'm really interested in how you suggest that teachers or how you yourself do that when it comes to writing essays, because we know that a lot of the scaffolds that are usually used are things like PEEL or P or these acronyms that talk about, you know, what's the point, what's the evidence and so on. How do you scaffold essay writing and how do you do it in such a way that you're scaffolding the thinking in a way that then leads students to be able to produce the product? 
you know, this is yet another area of, of English teaching which, which can get really contentious. And I think, you know, the first thing I'd say is I, I would never advocate any teacher taking away anything that's working for them. And, and if teachers are using PEE or PEEL or PEACE or any other acronym and it's successfully enabling students to write meaningfully about English uh, and, and text, I would never say stop doing that. However, for me, there's a question there around you know, when we use any sort of scaffold to help students to write, what are we actually scaffolding? And for me, when, when I was a new teacher, that was the approach I was taught to use, you know, so the typical kind of lesson would be, we'd study a bit of the text, we'd have some activities and discussion around it. And then most lessons would end with right now, write a P paragraph about it. So come up with a point, give some evidence or an example, and then explain what you mean. And you know, what I noticed sort of fairly quickly was it was time heavy, effort intensive, and that was mainly me. <laughs> so, you know, automatically half the class would put their hand up, miss, I don't know where to start. What, what, what's a point? Help me think of a point. I don't know. And, and often this would be off the back of a really meaningful class discussion where I thought, you know what, re they've really got this, but this has been great. We've really like delved into this text, but it was almost like it was adding confusion so they couldn't translate everything they knew we talked about into a point. And it seemed to me that we were asking them to do two things at once. And, and one was to think really meaningfully and deep, deeply about text. And the second was construct that in writing. And increasingly, I noticed that for students, the students who struggle the most, it was then a massive barrier to their confidence because they felt they knew it, but they couldn't articulate it in writing. And that's one of the sort of persistent problems that, that Zoe and I talk about at the start of the book is that it's so frustrating for English teachers when you think they've got it. And then you're taking the books at the end of the lesson or you're collecting the essays and it's like, well, what is this? <laughs> and so for me, it's a question of what's that scaffold doing in order to enable that student or not and then I think for more for students that were you know higher attaining that, that found the subject easier they would say to me miss can I can I just write what I think and not use a p paragraph can I and I'd say yeah yeah absolutely kind of write it in your own style brilliant and then I thought this is crazy you know the students that find it the easiest and are doing the best I'm just saying write however you like and they're getting kind of the high grades and the students that are struggling are really confused by this scaffold that I'm giving them so it's then thinking about what what are some kind of new ways that that, that we can do it the end result is by the time they go into their GCC examinations they've got to be able to write a full essay and at the heart of that essay, it's a coherent thread, a coherent argument. They're the essays that get, you know, the highest grades where there's a kind of strong thesis or an idea that's explored all the way through and is backed up with evidence. So the temptation for lots of teachers is to go backwards from that and think, okay, if the product at the end is an essay, we need to start practicing that product as early as possible. And I've worked in schools and I have done this myself where you know, you get them in year seven, the 12 years old, and you begin that practice. But it's uh, Daisy Christelodu in Making Good Progress uses this analogy of the marathon. She says, you don't train for a marathon by running a marathon. <laughs> you know, you break down all the different facets and all the diff different components of that final performance. You know, so you might, you, you start with shorter runs or you train certain muscles and then there's a journey towards the end goal. So the question for us and, you know, working with Zoe on this was about what do the component parts of that final performance look like? 
Now, that, that's not, you know, what that ended up with being some of the ideas we've shared in the book about the types of scaffolds we've used, you know, many of them are not writing. So we share some examples of kind of thinking diagrams, you know, things like that. So rather than ask a student at the end of the lesson to write a P paragraph, we'd ask them to do, for example, a simple Venn diagram of comparison. So what have these two poems got in common? What's different about them? And they'd do it that way. What we found in starting to use some of those ideas was that it was more meaningful because every student would write something different. It was more time efficient because there's no marking really for the, the teacher. It's a quick it's a quick look. It got rid of that frustration of every student's written the same paragraph copied from the board or they've just left out the explanation because they don't really know what to say or they've only used one quote. It told us something more useful and meaningful about what they'd been thinking about and what they'd really understood. And it removed that barrier for a lot of students that everything had to be about about writing. So there's lots of ways, you know, that that, that can potentially be done. We share some ideas in the book about around planning maps and different kind of visual organizers. Zoe is the absolute expert on this. Um, I'll, I'll admit that's the part of the book that she really kind of took ownership of because she she's really excellent on this and she taught me a lot about this as well. And then later we share some ideas about writing scaffolds around sentence fragments. So we exper- experimented with things like because but so, which I think is from um, from the writing revolution, and then some ideas around combining fragments but of sentences. The idea is that we really go back to what does good writing in English look like kind of end goal and it's the product of a lot of thinking so rather than rush to writing which often I think can reduce thinking because when you're writing a p paragraph what you're thinking about is that p paragraph and the order of it and, and ticking all the boxes that's how a lot of students do it and to get and to try and capture their thinking in lots of different ways so we advocate in the book a, a, por- a kind of portfolio of assessment I guess that we would say you know one P paragraph isn't the sum total or an essay of P paragraphs isn't the sum total of what students know and have thought about. And we can capture that in lots and lots of other ways as well. So in some of the schools I've worked in, that's been a a controversial idea. Lots of teachers are are quite wedded to these scaffolds. I've seen some better ones. There's, um, I've seen a lot of stuff shared around uh, what, how, why as a kind of way of asking students to write. I've had some success with that. I think it's better because it scaffolds the thinking process. You know, we do ask ourselves those questions as expert readers. What's the writer saying? How are they expressing those ideas? Why are they doing that? How does that link, you know, back to the bigger ideas or the bigger concepts? However, like anything in education, there's a danger of a, of a lethal mutation. It can easily become PEE. It can easily become a checklist and just a series of steps for students to work through. And, you know, experts in English don't think in linear ways. We don't think in linear ways about text. We don't have one point to make with one example and one simple explanation. And good essay writing, when you look at, you know, what gets the highest grades at GCSE, but what good writing is generally, it doesn't follow that order. Some would argue very strongly that if you don't scaffold that for students that struggle the most in that way, they'll never do well. Some will argue you need to start there and then you need to take it away. And again, as I said at the start, if that if that works for teachers and that helps their students, fantastic. For me, it didn't because I found that the students became wedded to it and actually taking it away was way harder than it sounded. And other things, such as some of the ideas that I've talked about and we show in the book, have worked better for me with classes that I've taught. 
Thanks, Sam. So one of the key things I took away from what you said there is helping teachers and students to think about the idea structure that sits behind the writing piece. And so one of the concrete examples you gave there was the Venn diagram, which, I mean, I'm not that familiar with the kind of prompts that are used in English essays, but I imagine something's like compare and contrast or maybe that's what the the key instruction word discuss means does discuss mean compare and contrast no i think we just say compare and contrast okay so compare and contrast so a vendor diagram could be an idea structure that sits behind that so if a student can construct a venn diagram that accurately represents you know similarities and differences between ideas in the text uh, that's actually a great thinking scaffold and that's something that you know, you could then layer some more concrete kind of writing scaffolds on top of that to support students to actually put it into words, but they, they're starting from the actual thinking. I'm wondering if there are some other, I know, I know you said this was more Zoe's domain, but I'm wondering if there are some other examples that you can provide for kind of idea structures that can be used as scaffolds for particular things that students are requ required to do within essays. You know, one thing we talk a lot about in the in in the book is the idea of kind of mind mapping. So we share some sort of ways of doing that with essays as a kind of planning process before you would start writing. It's about visualizing those connections and those links. So it's thinking about what's the what's the framework or what's the kind of schema that you want students to build around this text that they need before they start writing. So if we took, for example, a text that you know, a lot of teachers in, in the UK will be familiar with, which is an, an inspector calls. It might be that we want to explore a particular moment in the text in relation to the big idea and the bigger concept. So in that text, it's all about um, social injustice, the injustice of the class system, uh, use of power. It's like every text is about power <laughs> that we've talked about. So it might be that we would, you know, take that episode. So there's, a, there's an example of one of the characters, Sheila Burling, and she goes shopping and she meets the main character in the book, Eva Smith or Daisy Renton, who's dead. And, and all the different characters in the Burling family are responsible for that in, in some way. And we might want to explore Sheila's responsibility in that. So it might be that we take that episode and we break down on, on the board together or on the visualizer, how we do it, the different events in that episode. So I might, I might write them out. So Sheila, what does she do? Well, she goes dress shopping. What does she do next? Arrow. She tries on a dress and it doesn't fit her. Next arrow. She gets jealous. Next arrow. She sees Eva laughing and she thinks she's laughing at her. Then she gets her fired. Next arrow. So we'd plot out those events. And then it's thinking then, you know, if I'm going to ask them to write later down the line, an essay about or a piece of writing about Sheila's responsibility in this. And I need them to link it to the ideas within the text, the big idea around social injustice, but also some of those bigger concepts we've talked about around characterization, which is really important in this one. So I need to then make, I need to help students to visualize how all of those things link together. So we'd, I would put those on the board, then we'd go through. And again, I would model that question making process. So I might say, right, let's look at this bit then. Sheila tries on a dress that doesn't suit her. So then I might draw an arrow down, right? What can we infer from that? Well, what's interesting about that? Well, it's something that Eva couldn't afford. Why couldn't she afford it? Next line down. Well, she's a working class woman and 
you know, she's surrounded by things that she can't afford. She's working in a shop full of stuff she could never have, right? Okay. So we're getting from there a textual detail, arrow, note, arrow, note, starting to explore some of those ideas. So it's modeling visually on the board how you can take a textual detail, ask questions about it, and link it back to a bigger idea. And what's quite nice to do sometimes when you've define those bigger ideas um, in a tech. So this one about about power, to have some little visuals for that. So an example we share in the book is, um, you know, it's kind of rows of people in a a triangular shape to show show hierarchy. So every time we come back to the idea of power, we might show that to students. So I might now draw that on the board next to that that moment. So this is a moment about power. And then we could could co-construct the rest of that sort of mind map together. Right, okay, so let's look at the next bit. Right, she's become jealous right what can we say about that arrow well this relates to the idea that Priestley the the author is suggesting that you know even Sheila's got a difficulty she's a middle-class woman but she's got these expectations on her as well right okay I'm gonna add to that so again you know in the early stages of doing this with, with the class you would really heavily scaffold that it's making that really visual mind map with students who are able to do so you know you would co-construct that they would offer lots of things eventually you might just give them a moment from the text and ask them to do their own mind map completely and to to know say but for me it's about and you know there are millions of ways you could do that it's about have students done enough thinking have they constructed that framework in their own minds have they made those links and connections between the text the characters the events bigger concepts and bigger ideas and then those threshold concepts have they organized their knowledge enough to start writing an essay. And to me, that's where a lot of students fall down and find it difficult. They start writing before they've done that and then they're almost making it up as they go along. Now, the next step for me from that mind map would be, right, we've got an essay question now, which is to what extent is Sheila responsible for what happened to Eva or something like that? Or how does Priestley explore ideas of responsibility through Sheila? If I'm confident that they can map out all that thinking and it's organised, and I can see that every student's done that. And we've really thought about that. The next step is they should be able to write a thesis statement. So taking those ideas now, construct that into the argument that you're going to have. Now, again, in the early stages, you might get lots of students with very familiar thesis statements. If you've modeled that, the end goal is all of their thesis statements would be different because all of their mind maps would be different. But the benefit for me then as a teacher in terms of assessment is if I then look at the thesis statements and I want to give some feedback on them, and I think, actually, that one's not great. That student doesn't seem to have grasped it. Rather than asking myself the question, well, is it because they can't write a thesis statement? Is it a writing barrier? Is it a vocabulary barrier? Is it the articulation? I could look at the mind map and go, well, hang on a minute. This is really good and really well organized. And they've done this largely on their own. And they have made those connections. But in writing, it's not brilliant. So I've got a better idea of why. If I look at the mind map and go, yeah, that's not great. (laughs) The connections are not right there. They've they've got confused. I know it's about the lack of organized knowledge rather than about the writing itself. So all of these ideas that we share in the book and, you know, we just talked about there for me are ways to ensure students have done enough thinking before they start writing. And we can't rush that because if you rush it, what you end up with is essays that are underdeveloped, you know, that don't show their personal response and, you know, aren't as good as they could be. And for a teacher, it's really hard to work out then why, what are the barriers? That's really powerful. I think 
the main thing I'm taking away here is just the importance of coming back to that idea structure that sits behind the writing because that is the basis that we need to write from. It's interesting because this relates back to the last episode I did with Kelly Tatlock at Beckfoot because she was talking about the importance of mind mapping as a, as a retrieval scaffold for students. So she talked about different structures, mind maps, flow sprays, fishbone diagrams, double sprays, and other things that um, you know Oliver Caviglioli has kind of popularized. And as I think of my own learning process, and you know I've just finished, it's just gone to, we've sent it off to John Cat, my third book. The majority of the learning that has occurred for me through the process of learning to structure ideas sufficiently to actually put them into book form has all been around just how do you how do I organize these ideas and tools for teachers my second book was a good example of that I had like five years worth of podcast interviews with so much gold in them but it's like how on earth do I put this into a coherent narrative for for, for, for myself and for readers and for me that process has been a process of identifying and uncovering new tools that help me to external like ex- take the ideas out of my head and move them around that and that actually w- was catalyzed in many ways with, by my discussion with Oliver Caviglioli for this podcast when he talked about everything sits within containers and they sit on pathways and he talked about some ideas and following that what I started to do was Uh, It's evolved now, but the first thing I did, and this was for cognitive load theory, I would get all the ideas that I thought I wanted to include in a chapter. It wasn't actually sticky notes because sticky notes cost too much money. I would just cut cut up A4 sheets of papers into about 20 squares, write headings on them, put them on the table, and then just rearrange them, put them into groups, i.e. containers, then eventually put them on a pathway. And that was like a massive revelation for me because before that, I was spending so long like moving around massive chunks of text in documents and just really struggling to to build coherence you you might have also seen in today's podcast that the draft for today's podcast discussion i had all these weird like p57 like references and that's because through my podcasting i've worked out ways to organize ideas more efficiently and reference them and so your key message from this whole section about what's the idea structure that sits behind the writing piece, it's really hitting home for me because working out how to organize ideas has been the core of what's helped me to do what I have been able to do over the last eight or so years with ideas. And so it's really, really exciting to me that teachers like yourself are thinking more explicitly about how do we scaffold this process for students so that we can unlock for them power of organizing ideas in ways that it's going to help them to more effectively express themselves. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a very similar conversation last weekend at Research Ed with Sam Crome, who's just written um, a great book called The Power of Teams. And he was sharing with me how, as he was writing that book, he'd had some help from some, somebody whose name I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember, but around exactly what you've just said, how when you're writing a book, how can you organise your ideas coherently under chapters or under kind of categories? And, and I find that really powerful. I'm writing something myself at the moment and I took that idea back. And I think increasingly there are tools. I don't know if you're familiar with Evernote, but I, I've just discovered that and it's changed my life. It's just a way to save and capture all the different blogs and research articles and sort of different things you read under categories. And it's that what are the tools that help us externally to organize our minds 
when thinking about lots of different things. And when Zoe and I wrote this book, that's exactly how we did it ourselves. You know, in the early days, we sat down with huge pieces of paper and we mind mapped everything out. We mind mapped out all our big threshold concepts. Um, in fact, this is where the idea from the book came from. We sat down one day and thought, right, what is setting? We did a huge mind map of all the different ways we see setting represented in different texts and then we went round and circled all the things that stood out and seemed to connect together and that's where the kind of ideas come from so I think you know that that's how humans think you know we, we think in really messy ways but if we want to externalize that in some way like students have to do through writing or through examinations as kind of the end result of these courses in, in English we have to explicitly teach them ways to organize their thoughts before we ask them to put that into some sort of product and, and as you say we would do that ourselves as adults and if we hide those processes from them and we don't help them to do that their knowledge is going to be disorganized and messy and therefore so is the product that they that they produce and it's just good it's just good tools for life right it's it's not just about english it's just about the way you think and becoming better at that and you know having more thinking people definitely a good thing for the world yeah 100% it's really interesting and it's also surprising like when we talk about Okay, you know, you said you had a chat with someone the other week. You said you went through this, you and Zoe went through this process of externalizing your ideas, you know, get going big, writing out on walls and massive things. I've said, like, this is what I'm, I've been doing. You said Evernote's the way to do it. I mean, I've been playing around and had a lot of, uh, I feel like, in fact, Tools for Teachers were pretty much the ideas were organized in a program called Obsidian, which is similar. And I've just got Peps McRae onto that one and he's sent me an email <laughs> the other day saying, I'm in love with Obsidian. So people who are, serious and and intrinsically motivated to do this work of organizing ideas use these methodologies to do it and so it's so interesting and somewhat surprising that when we try to teach students to do that this is not the main way that they're taught it's like it's that that's a huge and somewhat insane disconnect to me and so it's great that there are people going back to it and thinking about how to scaffold that and I think we can probably probably even go further along that journey but it, yeah it's just it always surprises me when there's something that people do in the real world and then when we try to teach students to do it we just take a completely different approach that's completely disconnected from it and it's liberating for students you know they love it when you say you know we're not gonna you know I've had students say oh miss we're gonna write another paper I'm gonna do another piece of writing today it's like no no we're going to draw it. <laughs> they, they love it. It's liberating. It's something they can all succeed at. You know, it's not caught up in, I've got to think about really carefully about, because writing is really hard, right? I mean, I, you know, trying to write kind of the first chapter for the book, book I'm working at at the moment, I could sit in Starbucks for an hour <laughs> and, and like struggle with the first paragraph. And we all know it's hard. Once you get going, it starts to come together. But, you know, for, for students, it's kind of removing for a lot of them that barrier. And as you say, validating that it's okay, that it's the thinking that's important that can be captured in, in different ways. And, and you're right, for me, that should be an intrinsic part of how we teach students in school generally, not just in English. But, you know, here, there's just so much around the accountability system, the way that we're asked to measure progress. There's a lot of fear around letting go, I think, of some of those older ways of doing it. You know, God, if we're not, if we're not writing, what's in their exercise book? what we're going to spend our whole Sunday marking if they've just done some drawings, you know. And, it, you know, for me, it's, it's liberating for, for teachers 
as well. You know, I remember the Sundays where I would sit for hours and hours and hours while my kids were, you know, at the park with somebody else, grandparents, whatever, and plow through 35 exercise books, mar- marking paragraphs that were all the same. <laughs> and it was a complete waste of my time and added nothing to, to learning. So it's liberating on both fronts and it's more meaningful. And I, I'm not saying that's the only way we do it. You know, we only ever ask them to draw or do a Venn diagram or a mind map, but it definitely should be a big part of the way we understand what they've been thinking about and what they've potentially learnt and a key way that we teach them to organise their own thoughts and, and their own learning, definitely. Couldn't agree more. I could. Uh, there's many more threads I could pull on from from that discussion, but we need to move on because there are several other big things for us to talk about. And one of them, Sam, is assessment. So keeping all the above in mind, the importance of these different concepts and the levels of concepts, the importance of emphasising thinking over over products, understanding the the role of you know students' background, background knowledge. The, the concepts you've alluded to in terms of the background of the author and so on, how all this comes together. How on earth do we actually assess this or do we just keep on getting kids to write essays? Yeah, I mean, it's an absolute minefield, this one, isn't it? For me, like it always comes back to to purpose. What are we assessing and why are we doing it? And as I said before, you know, we get really sort of stuck in these old patterns of the ways that the exams are assessed at the end is in certain ways. Therefore, we should sort of backpedal from that and do that, do that all the way, all the way through. You know, there are loads of really good conversations going on at the moment in the sector about assessment. And there are a lot of people who are way more expert on it than I am um, in terms of some of the theoretical underpinnings for that. And um, there's people doing sort of really good work around it. But I think what, you know, one of the things we're really keen to sort of stress in in the book and to really kind of, kind of emphasise is that curriculum should be the master, not the servant. And that relationship, we think, has been really skewed that so much of English teaching and, and classroom practice has been geared towards assessment in, in the way that that is iterated through the exams. English is really tricky. And, in, you know, English teachers will probably never agree about this in terms of what we're assessing and why. And I think that just comes back to the discipline itself. You know, a lot of it is subjective, as we've, we've talked about already. You know, how do you measure the quality of a student's personal response to a text? That's a really knotty problem that's at the, the heart of the subject. And I think what we're keen to stress is what we're only ever assessing in English is thinking, but the way we capture that thinking is, is in a product. So we need to think about it intelligently. Some of the work we've done around this, so when we were writing this book in the early stages and trialling some of these ideas, we worked with um, a multi-academy trust in Norfolk in England, and they were designing their curriculum from scratch. And we came in and sort of supported them with with that work. And assessment was one of their really tricky problems. So some of the examples and the case studies in the book come from that trust and from the teachers that were were trialling that, and we're really grateful to them for that. Some of the things that we came up with were around breaking down what is known and what is factually true. So sort of the declarative knowledge of English, and and there's much of that. And then thinking about, you know, which is much harder, how do we measure conceptual understanding? And that's the really hard bit. But I think the first thing we felt was separating the two was important. So some of the ideas we share are around, you know, and these are not uncommon now to, to lots of teachers, you know, multiple choice 
questions, one word and short word answers, asking students to annotate an extract and, and looking at that, and then leading into more extended responses. Now, that's not revolutionary. I see lots of schools doing this, this kind of thing now. If we go back to what we probably would have done in the past, you know, so the end of a unit of work on, for example, an inspector calls, the students write an essay and it's summatively assessed and they get a grade for it. The problem with that is, as we've sort of touched on already, how does a teacher identify from that why a student might have struggled with certain things and whether they have the knowledge of the text and whether they have enough knowledge about writing and and, and how to articulate their ideas can become really intermingled and sometimes it's hard. So it's about trying to separate those two things and think and, and assess first, is the knowledge of the text there? And then secondly, are they able to articulate that in the ways that we would, we would want them to? So that whole example is kind of shared in the book. And there's a sample assessment at the back of the book that that, that trust have allowed us to share, which was the work we, we did with them. They are still using that approach now unless they've modified it and they've improved it um, since. And what they've they've said to us is, A, it's really reduced their marking because actually what you're doing is at least half of that assessment is kind of tick tick answers, yes, yes, no. And actually students could self-assess that as well. And then those extended answers towards the end, they're able to see more then, you know, they're able to identify in, in more meaningful ways where students have struggled, whether the barrier is the knowledge or whether it's the ability to art- articulate that in writing. So again, it's, it goes back to that idea of a kind of portfolio of assessment, you know, not relying on just one thing which previously was the essay or the p paragraph or the set of p paragraphs and trying to capture understanding in meaningful ways but always always towards the goal of a teacher being able to to learn from that assessment what students need to do next you know what have they not understood here what needs reteaching what needs revisiting where do they need further teaching and further support that's the goal of pretty much all assessment Hmm. The power, the power of um, separating though that you know knowledge of the text and ability to articulate that, I think, is really powerful from a you know formative assessment or diagnostic point of view to then know how to help students. I'm wondering if there, is there something in between there? Like, so you said knowledge of text and ability to articulate that, but is there not something else that sits in between? It's like knowledge of text, knowledge of, um, and I mean maybe this is part of knowledge of text, but kind of conceptual understanding of how text links to broader concepts in society or what it means to be human and so on and then ability to articulate that yeah i think so yeah i suppose i was using knowledge of text like super broadly in the ways that we've we've talked about so far but yeah i would include within that yeah the conceptual understanding so and and this is where you know it's it's really important when we talk about conceptual understanding to know exactly what we mean by that and to find ways to to assess that so if we took for example you know the concept of setting how do we know that students have really understood that in meaningful ways? If we define that narrowly and say setting is about the places that a writer chooses for their story to happen and, you know, they do that in different ways, we've got to ask the question then, have we, have we explicitly taught that concept in its entirety? If we think about that concept, for example, we might say settings reflect aspects of characterization settings are not real places settings can establish context for example social class settings help us to establish mood settings evoke a sense of place that helps to orient you within the text there's so much knowledge that students need to acquire that conceptual understanding that needs to be broken down 
So in the examples that we share in the book, as, as we work through the, the assessment, there's the knowledge of the text, the characters, what's happening, the events, and there's the knowledge of the concepts are also assessed as well. And again, that that's the work that needs to happen in departments of teachers working together at an early stage. There's a real danger that you just say you've got a concept-led curriculum and those concepts are in there, but they remain really broad and really abstract and therefore students are never able to access them. That knowledge needs to be broken down as much as it can, just as much as knowledge of the text, the plot and, and all the other things. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will share the ideas of substantive, second order and foundational concepts. The nine concepts that Sam looked at as the basis of the seven to nine curriculum. The five foundational concepts that Sam and Zoe distilled to sit at the heart of English. Links to David Didow's work as mentioned by Sam and the English curriculum at the Oat Academy more broadly. General advice for structuring a curriculum around concepts. Sam's overview of teaching a quality English lesson. Takeaways about teaching essay writing without referring to shallow strategies. Insights about how we can assess English in ways that get to the heart of student knowledge both thoroughly and efficiently. And so much more. At higher tiers, each of our supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favourite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. I've got Appendix B of your book in front of me, and you've talked about some of the question types that teachers can use to access and kind of disaggregate knowledge of text, this conceptual understanding and the ability to articulate it. And you've listed kind of multiple choice, one word answers, short answer questions, annotating, you know, the task of annotating an extract and extended response. I'm wondering if just to kind of reify this a little bit for our listeners, if you could pick one example from each of those categories and just read it out to listeners and then explain what that particular question is trying to do. I think it will really um, help listeners to understand and help me to understand as well. Yeah, so the example that we share in the book is from a, a scheme of learning that we co-created with the, the teachers within the trust that I mentioned. So this was a year seven scheme of learning on narratology and context. So it was the first big threshold concept that they studied. That was forefront at the beginning. And then they they explored their, um, those concepts through Segawin and the Green Knight, which is a text um, translated by Simon Armitage. So it was the pre-teaching of the concept and then the study of that through and, and how that was shown through the text. So this was their end of term assessment. So what we've tried to do 
is marry their assessing their understanding of the text in all the ways that we normally would, but also assessing their understanding of those concepts as well. So the assessment split up into different sections. So the first one is multiple choice. There are five questions. So some of the questions are textual. So, for example, in which century was the text written? But another example of, of one which would test the concept of narratology, test their understanding of that is, which statement is true? And they have to pick one from A, B or C. So A is stories are always influenced by the writer's background and real life experience. Stories are sometimes influenced or stories are never influenced by the writer's background and real experience. So again, bringing that, um, I think we talked about this last time, the idea, that concept that texts are constructs, one of those five deep principles that we talked about, and the extent to which writers, the, the texts are a product of their time. So it's just making that really, really explicit and checking that students have got the idea. So there's some multiple choice questions. Then there's some one word answers. So obviously the assessment's increasing in complexity. So these are kind of scaffolded sentences and the students have got to fill in the missing words. So an example of that would be what word means to write down your own comments in the margin of a story? And the answer is annotate. And then there's some textual ones in there as well. Then there's a series of short answer questions. So obviously getting, you know, increasing in difficulty. And again, a mixture of the textual and the conceptual. So one example is writers often write about our common concerns, write down two common concerns that most humans share. So again, you know, we talked last time about this idea of all texts saying something about the human condition in some way. So it's drawing on that idea. And again, it's trying to build their framework around the idea that writers, you know, have lots of things in common. You know, we've talked a lot about power, which obviously a really common one in, in text, but this kind of idea that they're looking for the same things in lots of texts, that writers share common ideas and common attitudes often because we're all human and we all kind of experience the human condition. So it's making that really explicit in assessment and asking them to think about that. In terms of answers to that question, so the question was writers often write about our common concerns, What write down two common concerns that most humans share. If a student wrote love and then loneliness, does that count as an answer or what would you, what will you be looking for there? So that concept of narratology has been taught throughout this unit. I haven't got that in front of me, but but from memory, that, that would include talking about aspects of the human condition that writers often write about. And that's what the students would be drawing from in that assessment. And would you have like a marking scheme for this as well? And what would that kind of look like? Yeah, there is a, again, I'm not, we should, probably should have put that in the book, actually, maybe on version two. <laughs> there is a mark scheme that goes with this, yeah. And it would mirror the GCSE examination mark scheme in the sense that there's always, it's always, here are valid answers, but there may be others. But that's the way of kind of English marking. So again, it's like judgment of the marker. Is that is that within the realms of reasonable? And they get the mark for that. <laughs> and then there's a section then on annotating an extract. And it's quite heavily scaffolded within this assessment. So they've got an extract from Sagawa in the text. There's a few bits that have been highlighted in bold within that for them. And then there's uh, five things that they're asked to do with that extract. And again, this is really to break down if they're struggling to annotate, why? And therefore, how does that inform a teacher with what to do next compared to what we might have done previously, which is give them an extract and just say annotate it. So for example, um, one thing they're asked to do is highlight a relevant quotation and to add the following annotation in the margin. And the annotation is, suggests they were having a lot of fun together. So they're being really guided towards the quotation, 
but it's got to match with that annotation. So there's a couple of things going on there. You know, it's have they understood the text because are they going to find the right quotation? But it's also modeling again that process of annotation. So the idea that it suggests something and that the annotation is, is short and snappy. And then another example, sort of flipping it would be, add a relevant annotation to the line in bold at the end that says, no nobler knights had come within a castle's wall. So this time they've got the quote, but they've got to add their own relevant annotation to that. So that's the next part. And then the final part of that assessment is an extended response. And I think this is probably where a lot of assessments used in English would start and end, really. So the question is, how does the story of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight reflect the values of the time in which it was originally written? And the guidance is, refer to examples from the extract. In your response, you can include quotations, aim to write one or two paragraphs. So by that point, you know, they've been working through this assessment. They've obviously studied this text as part of the unit. It's quite a scaffolded response. So it's a couple of paragraphs. They've got a tight extract to focus that around. They've annotated the extract already in line with the guidance that we've given them to do that, to help, you know, that that's assessment, but it's also to help them to organize their knowledge in preparation for that last bit. And then they would write their their answers. So it should be really clear, you know, using that assessment with, you know, a range of students within a class or across a year group, where students stop and where they start to struggle, you're able to see the organisation of their knowledge around the way that they annotate the extract. And therefore, if the extended response is weaker, it should be pretty clear why. But there's so much rich information there, I think, for a teacher that shows what students have learned and remembered and understood from that scheme of learning to know what to do next. But so much of it is is also transferable because we're not just assessing their understanding of the text, it's the conceptual understanding as well. So in terms of planning forward for the next unit, there's lots of rich data there that can be used because we're not visiting these concepts once. You know, So although the unit that follows this is around setting for year seven, they go into that and, and this idea of place, the concepts of narratology and context are still going to need to be referred to. They're not the focus concepts, but we're not just leaving them and going on to something totally different. So this idea of coherence within the curriculum and the kind of the thread of the, the threshold concepts going through is really important. What I love about what you and the team have done there, Sam, it's so it's so clinical. You've thought about what are the all of the ingredients, what are all the stepping stones that a student needs to walk across in order to be able to achieve success with this final kind of cumulative task, which is the extended response. And you've structured your assessment to check how far along those stepping stones I've made it. So it's really clear from a diagnostic standpoint exactly where they might be falling down. And the other thing that's really fantastic is you've done it in a way that's efficient for teachers to mark and efficient for them to analyze. So I, I think for me, that's what I'm taking away from this. If and when I construct or work with other teachers to construct English assessments and probably assessments more broadly in the future, that's something that I'm going to be keeping in my mind. What are the stepping students need to walk along and how can I target this assessment to each of those stepping stones to see where they made it to? Really, really powerful idea. Yeah. And that's not just relevant for English, right? That's that's just a way of approaching assessment, which is useful for all subjects. And also, you know, the implications of the way you sequence and structure your curriculum, you know, that that's the journey a curriculum map should take, you know, building on those stepping stones towards those end goals. And that's relevant in, in any subject. Yeah, really powerful. What about comparative judgment? Do you use comparative judgment 
If so, when and for what purpose? And when would you not use it? Yeah, I haven't used it myself yet, although I'm very familiar with with schools that are using it. So, I mean, for me, anything that increases the validity of assessment, which is so tricky, and simultaneously reduces marking load for teachers, is something you know to be to be celebrated and certainly to be tried. And I know that um, you know that whole program; they've had a lot of success with it, and and particularly around writing, it seems to be a, a really powerful tool. I suppose I would need to think carefully about. You know, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a way to assess conceptual understanding in the really diagnostic ways that we've just talked about. But, you know, to go back to that point, there's it for me, it's about a portfolio of assessment and not relying ever on just one way to make valid and reliable judgments about what students have learned and, and understood and are thinking about. So it seems to me, from what I know of it, that it's, you know, a really powerful tool uh, in terms of the purpose that it has, which is to increase validity through comparison. Thanks. I was, I was just, I was just curious because I know you're you've thought a lot about assessment and um, I know you've worked with lots of schools on assessment. So I was curious if you, if you'd use that a lot. And I think there is, there is a danger. A lot of schools I think are taking on comparative judgment, getting very excited about it. And as you say, I think it's a powerful tool as part of a portfolio of assessment um, and potentially for, you know, a couple of times a year benchmarking or seeing, trying to measure real growth in, in students' writing abilities and, and so on. Sam, in your book, something that you emphasise is the it's something you, a, a word you've used a lot in today and the previous podcast is the is the word co-constructing, and something that you really emphasise in your book is the importance of going along this journey together of constructing the curriculum, coming to a deeper understanding of a concept based approach, and so on. And something you you really warn readers to be wary of is kind of rushing ahead having a head teacher, uh, sorry, or a, a head of department kind of writing out the whole scheme of work and getting everyone to to apply and so on. What are some of the things that a head of department can do or someone leading change within a department can do to take teachers along the journey towards more of a concept-based curriculum and, and, and lessons, as you've been describing to us uh, in this episode in the last, uh, in such a way that really does involve them and leads to sustainable rather than transient change. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, um, you know, I'll caveat that by saying I've been in that position. So I spoke, uh, you know, last time we met about the school that I worked in when the new specifications came in and, and Zoe and I were able to work together on on the curriculum. And we did that, you know, initially to start with and then started on our own and then started to involve people. But we had the job of selling that to everybody and, and trying to bring them along with us. And I think that's where we, we really learned and understood you know the power of that there's there's no point the head of department having in their head their really clear understanding of what the curriculum should look like and then just saying to teachers right here we go here's your powerpoints you know your, your schemes of learning kind of everybody go off and uh, and teach it because you know we've talked about this idea of the curriculum being the the map or the journey or the schema that we want students to have the starting point has got to be that teachers have that, that there's a shared understanding around the purpose of the curriculum, the aims, you know, the goals and the outcomes. But more importantly, how all the knowledge and skill and understanding that they intend to teach hangs together and is connected. So, you know, for me, teachers working together collaboratively having quality, high quality, meaningful curriculum conversations is the key to all of this. And too often I see the opposite of that. Teachers being told what to teach, 
given the resources and told to go off and do it, and then being criticised when they don't do it in the way that somebody had in, in their head. So for me, getting everybody working together on this is not only important for those reasons, it's also really empowering for teachers and it's intellectually stimulating. So I think, you know, the first first step is, is to sell the vision. You know, if you're going to make, and everybody will have a different starting point, but, you know, some people will be on the road to this and I've lots of people have contacted us since writing this book to share where they're at, they are in their own schools on this journey. Others have said to us, you know, I want to do this, but I just don't know where to start. Where do I start? It's really defining the purpose why do you want to make this change? So when Zoe and I worked with schools, particularly when we worked with this multi-academy trust in Norfolk, the first thing we did when we worked with this group of schools was we spent a good hour or so in the morning talking about all the reasons that students find English hard. Because we knew we knew a lot of teachers were coming to this meeting, this kind of discussion that we had with them about curriculum. We'd come into the school, we'd been asked by the senior leaders to help to kind of drive this change. And we knew there'd be a lot of you know barriers to that. A lot of people worried about that. Teachers worried about losing their autonomy. Are we going to have to teach a curriculum somebody else has created? So we started with, right, all of us in the room here are English teachers. We've all been teaching different amounts of time. Why can this be a really tricky, challenging subject for students? We had a big flip chart at the front of the room and people fed things in and they said things like, you know, the gap between what students know and what they can actually write. It's really hard to get them to start writing. They struggle to access some of the bigger ideas, you know, lack of background knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. We made a huge list of them. And then we talked about some of the underlying things, you know, reasons why that might be. And it was, it, was a, it was a discussion with everybody involved. And what we came to was this idea that there are kind of struggles at the heart of the subject or what we call persistent problems in, in the book, not our term, um, but one we've used, and that these are common to all of us. And for us, that was the buy-in. It was however long we've been teaching, however successful we are with our own classes, you know, there, there are still these tricky, knotty problems and actually curriculum and the way we think about curriculum is the way we address them. So if all the ways we've tried so far haven't been as successful as we want them to be, what could be better? And that was the kind of lead into thinking about concepts and, and, and big ideas. So, you know, that's not the only way to do it. We had a particular way we were, we were asked to work with these teachers, which is fairly unusual in that we were coming in external to the school. But, you know, I work with English departments in my own trust um, at the moment and with other schools and working with a couple uh, right now to help them develop their curriculum. Another way that I've done it is to get teachers around a table and we look at an extract together. So I did this recently with a school. We looked at the opening of the novel, Rebecca, and I asked them all to annotate it. And we just all sat together and just annotated the text. And then we had a really good discussion about all the things we'd noticed, all the things we'd found as English teachers. And then we asked the question, how easy do students find this to do when you put this in front of them? How often do they notice that, you know, the, the symbolism of the, of the house at the beginning of Rebecca is really gothic in style? And, and how do we notice that? How do we know that? And then that leads into a discussion about the gap between what we as experts know and can do compared to some of our students who may struggle and what are we doing enough then in the curriculum to close that gap and that's another way in so however you do it it's selling the vision and the need for change and every teacher will you know comes into teaching I really believe to make things better for kids that's why we're all here so you it's getting that it's saying you know how can we do a better job for kids and what changes can we make to the curriculum that are going to help them to access our subject and enjoy it more? So that's my first thing, like sell, sell the vision. 
so this is the selling the vision, I guess, and creating the shared purpose with the team that you're working with. But I think it's really important to do that with senior leaders as well. And I think lots of heads of department, you know, of English will recognize the scenario where they are reporting to somebody who's not an English specialist and some of the difficulties that that can bring. And particularly when you're selling the need for a concept-led curriculum, which can seem really different to the ways of doing it in the past. You know, senior leaders will have often lots of questions about that, particularly around how compatible that is with continuing to improve results for, for students. So being able to articulate that clearly and again, I say this from the position of having to do this myself. And there was one occasion where I did it very successfully. And there was another occasion where I did it very unsuccessfully. And my reflection on it was that I hadn't articulated enough the benefits to leaders of the change that I was trying to implement or wanted to implement. So getting their buy-in, because ultimately, and we touch on this in, in the book, but on reflection, I think there's a lot more to say about it. It's going to be the leaders in a school that determine whether this is successful or not, because they are the only ones that can remove the barriers needed for this work to happen. Now, when we worked with the, the mat in Norfolk, we were really lucky because the senior leaders were hugely on board with this and were able to co- create that capacity for the department to do this work really meaningfully. But too often that's that's not the case for, for a number of reasons. And, you know, it's it's often not that people don't want it to happen. There's lots, lots of, you know, complex challenges in schools that, that leaders have to deal with other than just the English curriculum. But for this to to work and for a department to be able to meaningfully recreate a curriculum in the, in the ways that we've talked about they need the time you know we are time poor in education but it's only leaders that can create that time it can be done and the schools that I'm really lucky to work with in my trust we prioritize CPD teachers are given time a lot of time in some cases to, to do that work but leaders need to remove those barriers and you know because it's not quick and it's not easy Zoe and I in creating our curriculum it took us 18 months to do that work for the Morty Academy Trust Zoe was working on it full-time I was working four days a week for an organization at the time and doing this one day a week and we created a key stage three curriculum now think about asking teachers teaching five or six lessons a day and a head of department trying to do that and run a department to create a high quality curriculum you know it's really hard and it's intellectually difficult work as well but enjoyable work so leaders the the second thing I'd say is then that leaders have to remove those barriers and have to create the time and then it's about sustaining it and I think as a head of English you know you have to quality assure that curriculum you have to you know be assured that what's being delivered in classrooms marries with that shared purpose that shared vision and and those ideas that you created together you know that's not just about going into people's lessons and observing them and checking all the time it's about continually reflecting and reviewing and refining that that curriculum as well but you know the thing i see most often is that gap between what's in the head of department's head and then what's actually happening in classrooms. And I think you can't underestimate the link between quality curriculum delivery and CPD. And again, one of the things we talk about a lot in the book and we would really advocate for is subject-specific CPD. So it's that ongoing, you know, it's not enough to assume that even when you've spent ages together and you've done really great work creating a really high quality concept-led curriculum, that on its own isn't going to be enough to sustain that. And teachers need and are entitled to, I really believe, high quality subject-specific CPD. And, you know, that can happen in lots of ways, but at the heart of you know, curriculum implementation, in my view, is continuing high quality 
dialogue and conversation around that um, that all teachers are, are involved in. That can be, you know, through kind of coaching conversations. It can be through um, ongoing dialogue in departments. It can be done through meeting time. It can be looking at poems and texts that you're going to teach and, and working on those together and drawing out some of the key things that you want students to work on. But again, that comes back to leadership. You know, good school leaders remove other stuff that's extraneous and, and you know, often I think sometimes unnecessary in schools to make that the priority for teachers. And really good schools, I think, always have at the heart of them time for teachers to learn and improve and get, and get better. So for me, it's the vision, creating the vision, the shared vision, and getting the buy-in from your team and from senior leaders. It's working with senior leaders so that the barriers are removed for teachers to be able to do that work. And then it's about ongoing high quality curriculum conversations and subject specific CPD that helps to sustain that work. That's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a mission. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. But I think if we pretend it's easy, then it's only ever going to be surface and temporary you know and there are people that say that better than me you know I, I always quote Mary Myatt's phrase you know fewer things greater depth it's depth that's that's needed here and you know there are lots of other ways that schools might go about this they might buy in a curriculum and ask teachers to teach that and there's, there's nothing wrong with that in my view but it doesn't take away the need for some of the stuff we've well all of the stuff we've talked about here you still got to create a vision around it you still got to get people on board you still got to have the time for teachers to learn around it and develop their knowledge around it and you've still got to sustain it in the same ways so it's not the answer to all problems and in in the schools that you've worked in where this has been successful in terms of the time required to offer that subject specific cpd to staff how much time is allocated to that and how much time do you think needs to be allocated to that to bring teachers up to speed and keep them up to speed that really depends on loads of things, the size of the department, the context of the school, competing priorities. It's always going to look different. But, you know, take for an example, I mean, not all the schools in my trust are, are really good at doing this, but you know, in particular, the East Manchester Academy, which is in Beswick and Greater Manchester, to give you an example of what teachers get there, an, an hour a week on a Wednesday of whole school CPD an hour a week of joint planning and preparation time to work together in departments entirely on curriculum and subject-specific CPD. They also get an hour a week for instructional coaching. Coaches get an hour a week for their own professional development to learn how to be better at coaching. And many staff also participate in external training, such as the National Professional Qualifications, there's a lot of that here, and other courses through the Chartered College and opportunities that we provide for them through the Trust as well. So, so it's a huge commitment of time and a huge commitment of money. And it wouldn't be within every school's capability to provide that. But, you know, what we see is, you know, at that school, huge willingness and motivation from teachers to engage in professional learning because I think they appreciate the investment that's, that's given to them. It's exceptionally well led by the head teacher and the senior leadership team. And so in, in terms of kind of relationships between leaders and, and staff, it's, you know, it's really positive. And what we've seen is, you know, that school's gone on, on a journey since that head teacher took over from being very difficult, challenging and not successful to where it, where it is now, which is it's doing amazing work for the students in, you know, in that, that community, because professional learning for teachers is at the heart of that, that journey. Thanks, Sam. You've sketched out a really clear uh, but in-depth <laughs> kind of roadmap for making this change happen. And I would also refer listeners to your book, which, you know, takes everything you've said there and builds upon it even further. Sam, 
a concept-based approach to instruction, is this something that we should every school every teacher of every subject should be thinking about and 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 are there other people thinking about this in other subjects yes i think the question around whether this is something that all subjects should be thinking about yeah i would say absolutely yes within every you know and i won't profess to be an expert in any subject (laughs) apart from my own and maybe even that is questionable but um you know there are there are big concepts and, and big ideas at the heart of every subject and i think a lot of the things we've discussed in our time together sort of relate relate to that idea so you know some of the things we've touched on for example how the assessment sort of led system has distorted ways of teaching I think it would be fair to say that's true of other subjects as well that the temptation has been to sort of backpedal from that end goal and plan a curriculum towards it I think in any subject a curriculum that is sequenced through some of the bigger ideas and the bigger concepts that enable students to access richer, more meaningful ways of thinking about that curriculum content is really important. It's going to look really different. I mean, I do a lot of work across my trust, working across subjects. So I have these conversations with the teachers all the time. You know, it's a very different conversation that you would have with um, a maths teacher about what concept-led curriculum looks like there compared to, you know, having that with with a history teacher. But essentially for me, it's about, you know, getting to that understanding. We're not teaching the stuff that's in the national curriculum or in the exam and that's that's the end of it we're trying to pass on to students academic disciplines and that you know is the same in every subject the way we teach an academic discipline isn't through the very very narrow domain of the exam content it's through all the bigger ways of thinking about that subject the concepts the big ideas that, that hang it together it's enabling all students to access the entirety of that that discipline do you, do you know of other people who are doing this in other areas who who I can have on the podcast? Mary Meyer is your woman. If you haven't had Mary Meyer on already, you must get in touch with her immediately. Uh, she wrote the foreword to our book and she's written some fun. So she's done a series of books. You might be aware of them with John Thompson called Her, H-U-H, around curriculum conversations with senior leaders. They're an amazing resource for schools. She's written about concept-led curriculum through blogs and various things. As I say, she wrote the forward to our book where she talks about some of those ideas. She would be a great person to talk to and certainly she'd know of other really good people across the country that are doing this work as well. I think it's important to say, though, in terms of, you know, if schools or departments are thinking about making the move to a, a more concept-led curriculum, everyone's got different starting points there. And so in my, my experience of the schools I've worked with, not every school or department is necessarily ready right away to, to do that. I've worked with schools where, they're, you know, they're really at that point and they've said, OK, we know where we need to get to, we can kind of see it. And they're asking questions about concept-led approaches and the foundations are are in place. But equally, I've worked with schools where what they've had as their starting point is a curriculum very focused on exam content. And so the next right step isn't a concept-led curriculum, it's too much. The next right step is probably just a more coherent thematic approach. And and maybe the next step after that is to start thinking about some of the bigger concepts and ideas. Uh, You know, I think with curriculum, it's always about evolving. It's evolution, not revolution. And actually, if you go straight into the the concept-led ideas, but you've not got the staff buy-in or necessarily the staff knowledge or the staff expertise, you know, we've got huge problems in this country at the moment around recruitment and retention. We do not have in every department as we would want to have every school you know highly qualified subject specialists you know that's the reality for some departments they'll have people teaching English that don't have necessarily a a degree or the you know the background in that subject they'll have lots of newer teachers or less experienced it's just always about 
the team of people you're working with and what's kind of the next right step um, for them. And as I said before, you also need that support from SLT, from senior leaders and that understanding as well. And if that's not there, if the culture is not conducive to this kind of hard, intellectual, rigorous curriculum work, then probably there's a few steps before that that need to happen as well. Thanks, Sam. That's eminently pragmatic and practical, as has been every bit of advice you've shared uh, in, in the last two podcasts. I'm wondering, Sam, if teachers want to start by changing one thing you've given us the the you've given us the big kind of picture approach but if they want to change one thing to move themselves towards more of a concept-based approach what would you suggest they do I think it probably goes back to something we've we've talked about a little bit already which is this idea of kind of starting with persistent problems and you know you could do this individually yourself we could do this ideally with colleagues asking that question in our subject what do pupils frequently struggle to understand? And I think it's likely that the root cause of that is probably conceptual understanding. The next question is, the pupils that have got really high levels of understanding, what are they getting that that, that others aren't? What threshold have they crossed? And I think that's the starting point for a concept-led curriculum because thinking about concepts are the way we address some of those underlying struggles that, that students have. And then the next thing would be to map it out so like when Zoe and I did when we started this work I said previously we got big pieces of paper out and we said right students are doing really well I've really grasped this idea around setting and how writers use setting let's map it all out what do they know that other students don't know what do we know and we mapped it all out Um, and it was that thinking that we did that prepared us then to think about what would then look like that looked like in the curriculum so the starting point for me is what makes the subject hard for the students who who need our help the most and what do we know about it that they don't and then how could the curriculum close that gap and I would always advocate that being done through dialogue and conversation in departments. Sam three book recommendations. Okay, so the book that I've read most recently, and I read over the summer, and I think you also had this book mentioned on your last conversation with Kelly, is Sarah Cottingham's book, Archibald's Simulation Theory of Learning. For me, I mean, I just love that book. It took me all summer to read it because I had to keep stopping and thinking about it and tweeting about it and talking to people about it. To me, that's the theory that backs up the concept-led approach, and I wish I'd read it or Sarah had written it before I wrote my book. And actually, in the early stages of writing my book, I did have a good conversation with with her, where we, we unpick some of this stuff. For me, that idea about bodies of knowledge and subsumers, essentially they are the bigger concepts that we feed with all the other knowledge, is the theory that supports concept-led curriculum. Um, and Sarah is also a lovely human and, and person. So I would really recommend that book. Secondly, I've recently read Simon Sinek's book, Start With The Why. And I think there's so much in there that's relevant to schools as well. And we, we've talked about about this a lot today and, and previously. If we're asking teachers to change the way that they plan curriculum or the way they teach or to engage in coaching, for example, we need them to buy into our vision. So for me, this book sets out why we need to be really clear about purpose and how purpose inspires people if we are able to communicate it clearly. So that that was really valuable, I think. And then finally, I absolutely love Vivian Robinson. I know you've had her on a couple of times on your podcast as well. Her book, Reduce Change to Increase Improvement, for me is is an absolute must read. So again, the idea of kind of theories of change and that kind of clarity of purpose is really important. And she really emphasizes the need for quality talk and quality dialogue. And I think that's at the heart of all all good curriculum work. At the moment, I'm doing a lot of work around instructional coaching. I know that's an interest of yours as well. So for me, it feeds into that. What, how can we have 
have in schools high quality conversations and and dialogue around these important things and and how can we use coaching as a tool to improve the quality of our, of our curriculum and the quality of our, of our relationships in schools as well so so her book reduce change to increase improvement would be one of my must reads as well a great selection. I haven't actually read Start With Why, but um, I've already got it downloaded as an audiobook, so I, I must must dive in. Uh, and yeah, Vivian, Vivian Robinson, if people are keen to go back to episode 28, way back in the in the early days of the ERRR, we're now up to episode 80-something, Vivian and I discussed, discussed that, uh, that book and that was a really, really enjoyed that conversation. And um, I'm actually hoping to have Sarah on in the very soon future to discuss her new new book as well. And I might actually try to get this podcast discussion to her before we record so that uh, my discussion with her can build on this one. I'm, I, I recognise that that would be giving her four hours of homework to do, which is probably quite demanding. But I'm sure she'll enjoy hearing hearing from you anyway. So. And she's, she's just had a baby, so I'm sure she'll really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Sam, what are you currently most excited about? I'm really excited at the moment about the quality of conversation in the sector around curriculum and around CPD. And I just think there are some amazing organisations at the moment, such as the Teacher Development Trust, the Chartered College, Iris Connect. They're all providing exceptional courses and resources. So good CPD, I think, for teachers is more accessible than ever. And then you know, there's also those resources to help schools to develop their own provision. So the Education Endowment Foundation, for example, some great work. In particular for me around CPD at the moment, you know, instructional coaching as a way to support those high quality professional conversations. Quite a loaded topic um, at the moment. There's an argument going on right now on, on Twitter about it again. But I think, you know, there's there's a real benefit to coaching when it's thought about really carefully and, and in context. And um, as I said, I'm working on a book about that at the moment with my really good friend and colleague, Alex Reynolds. So we're really excited about, about that. And that's going to focus on how schools can train up and work with and develop instructional coaches um, who are also teachers within within their schools. And I think as well, despite, you know, the fact that there were really significant challenges in the in the UK at the moment, and we see the ways that they manifest in, in the education sector. For me, the thing that really excites me is the professional generosity and support that I see, you know, all the time. So many people sharing ideas and resources not for any sort of personal gain, but genuinely because they just want to make the system better. I see it in my trust all the time across my four schools, amazing colleagues that are so generous. There's a fantastic network um, set up by my lovely friend Tracy Goodyear for people who lead CPD across trusts. There's, there's a huge group of us now. We meet every month. We talk about how we can make our schools and our trust better and make learning for teachers better. That's all done for free. It's just people's time and, and collaboration. Just this week, two colleagues from different trusts near to me have given their time freely to come and help me with stuff and, and to collaborate so you know I think that's really exciting that there are just so many good people trying to work together to do good work who care about other people's schools and trusts as much as they do their own and you know I think when we collaborate and share in that way it's young people isn't it that benefit and, and that's what really gives me hope. A great message Sam and, and any last calls to action things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? It's probably just to emphasise what, what I just said, that I think, you know, our profession is at its best when we engage in that kind of thoughtful, nuanced dialogue and when we share our expertise and when we remember that 
you know, we're all here for the same reason, which is improving the outcomes and life chances of young people. So I guess my call to action would be asking yourself that question. What what more could you share? What more could you contribute? Who else could you talk to? And I think without being sort of too political about it, I think we can't we can't afford to sit around and wait for governments to improve things. I think we've got to be that chain we want to see and do everything we can to improve our schools and the system by working together and collaborating towards that shared purpose. Sam Gibbs, thank you so much for the four hours that you have uh, donated to the ERRR podcast over the last two days and the last two episodes, and no doubt from the structure and coherence of your answers, the the other additional time that you took to considerately prepare. Three big takeaways for me. One, that line you said in in the first episode, there is intrinsic value in the process of meaning-making, I thought was really powerful and is one that I'll be pulling out in the future as well. The second idea of the importance of scaffolding thinking over products and really thinking to yourself, uh, you know, what is the idea structure that sits behind the, the, the writing piece that we're hopefully hoping to scaffold students towards? And the third one is that idea of assessments that target the stepping stones towards success, I think is really powerful as well. In addition to obviously the actual five, you know, big ideas that sit, sit behind English. There is a lot of work or I've come across work, lots of work in the past around kind of, you know, big ideas or, you know, question-led curricula and things like that. But invariably, every time I come across it, I find it quite wanting. I find it quite lacking in substance. But the reason why I'm so excited about the work of yourself and Zoe and other people who, who, who you've, you have alluded to in the, our last two conversations is you've managed to have this kind of big idea focus at the same time as furnishing that with concrete and knowledge-rich material, you know, a, the backing of a, a deep understanding of cognitive science and also a real explicitness. Like, if you want to do this as well, you can do these things. And I think that, I mean, I've always been excited by the kind of big idea approaches. But every time I pull out a book or, you know, read book or even interview someone about one of these approaches, I always find find it's wanting. And today with you, uh, today and yesterday with you, I feel like I could continue asking questions for many, many more hours and you would continue to have answers that were really well thought out and substantiated with uh, practical experience and, and classroom, uh, classroom practice and recommendations. So, Thank you so much for that. I hit up your book earlier. Here, I've got it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I've made sure that our, our head of department at school has a copy because I really do think it's one of the most practical books that has been written for teachers that says, like, here's some big ideas and here's literally how to do it. And finally, Sam, thank you so much for giving me a, a deeper understanding of the richness of English because it's not it's something that I missed in education. And the last four hours with you have been incredibly uh, enriching for me. So, Thank you, Sam Gibbs. Thank you, Ollie. It's been my absolute pleasure. Hi, all. It's Ollie again with one more thing before you take off. And that one thing is EdThreads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My free weekly newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary for teaching and learning that you can get free access to. 
I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show, and that I've discovered from scouring the world of education. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.